Welcome to the History of California podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today we have Dr. Patrick Allett on the show. Dr. Allett is the Cahoon Family Professor of American History and Undergraduate Honors Coordinator at Emory University. He has a PhD from UC Berkeley and is the author of seven books, most recently, A Climate of Crisis, America in the Age of Environmentalism. He's also a presenter of a number of lecture series through the Great Courses, one of which is titled The West, a major part of this conversation. There's a lot I admire in the work of Dr. Allett, primary among those being his ability to translate academic work to a broader audience, something that I'm trying to do here with this podcast. Please enjoy this wonderful conversation. You've done a lot of great work in public history, which I believe is a task of equal importance to creating new scholarship. But I am curious, let's say when you enter the history section of a Barnes & Noble, what do you notice about the trends and books that garner attention? And what do you think is missing in this world of public-facing history? Well, the, the history books which get the most attention are the ones which are directly related to some current project or some current crisis or issue. So I'm very struck by the way in which the editors and the agents clearly try hard to link a book to some current crisis, even if once you get into the book, it turns out not really to be that directly related to it. And they also quite often attempt to offer a solution. I mean, they'll say, you know, a hundred years war in the Middle East and how to end it, as though there is in fact an easy solution out there. And so I, I usually look at the the marketing surroundings of these books and then take it with a big grain of salt. On the other hand, you, you're right, I'm very enthusiastic about public-facing history because I do think that one of the weaknesses of my profession is over-specialization. And a lot of historians who I like and admire personally are doing work which is destined for extreme levels of obscurity, which I think is a shame. I listened to a great uh, interview on one of the BBC podcasts where they uh, brought in um, a, a, a scholar of ancient Rome, Emily Wilson, who just had a translation of the Iliad that just came out, and then someone that was doing work on uh, the history of the Tories, and they were able to kind of synthesize that. And that's that's the kind of stuff I really love and wish, you know, so kind of what you're talking about, about attention to common or current issues but also connecting them to historical patterns and trends. And I think, I think that is a great thing. I, my fear is kind of myopia, which is you know only focused on things that are directly relevant to the present, I think, prevents us from seeing the broad scope of history. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. You've approached a lot of different subjects through your work in the great courses from conservative traditions to Victorian England to the West. When you approach designing a course like that, how do you think about it in terms of what to include and what to not include? the level of detail you go into and the kinds of sources that you would derive your course information from. I guess in some ways what I'm asking is for you to imagine that I was tasking you with designing a brand new course, and I'm curious kind of what your modus operandi would be in terms of preparation. Well, I've been very strongly influenced by the great courses because of the of what they what they require. The first course I did with them was back in 2001 on American religious history. And in those days, the guy who founded the company, Tom Rollins, was still involved in the day-to-day -day running of it. And he said, what we want you to, to do is to imagine that you're addressing someone who's as highly educated as you are, but in a different subject. And, and, and they know from market research that their customers are mainly people with at least degrees and very often advanced degrees as well. 
So that's the that's the level at which we pitch it. It's meant to appeal to intelligent and educated people. And then also they say, now send us a design in which you break the topic down into 24 manageable units, and each one of those will be one of the lectures. And so I send them 24 titles, and they've got a committee which looks at them and screens them. And then I send them 24 short summaries of what I think will be in each of them. And again, because I know that it's going to be, that the audience won't be professional historians, I don't worry too much about statistics, and I don't worry too much about complicated interpretive questions. And instead, I look for vivid stories to tell about the people and the places and the and, and, and things which now strike us as strange and fascinating. So it's a, a very self-aware attempt to make it fascinating and alluring to the audience. In an interview I did with H.W. Brands, he was talking about some of his book tours that he'd go on, and he said his most enthusiastic audiences were ones where the average age was north of 70. Do you think teaching history is wasted on the young? It's not wasted on them because they don't forget what they've learned or they don't forget all of it. But there's no question that as you get older, you become more aware of your own place in history. And then when your own kids say to you, they mention something like 9-11 and you, and you can say, oh yeah, I remember that. It was a Tuesday morning and you actually tell them about it. It's difficult for most teenagers don't yet feel that history is going on. They feel as though it's something which is stuck inside that thick textbook they had to do for AP US history when they were in high school. So it's unusual for teenagers to love history, but the older they get, the more people enjoy it. And so, I mean, what Mr. Brand said, I totally agree with. I often speak to citizens groups. I must do 15 or 20 a year. And usually the audience is in its 60s, 70s and 80s. I did one on last Saturday night, it was, and it was a comparison of George Orwell and Winston Churchill. And everyone was 60 or above. Okay. My next question is related to some of the differences between what we see in the British public and the U.S. public understanding of history. Another way of asking this question is for you to imagine that you're in a room of American students, and then you also have a second room of British students. Are there certain ways that you might teach a historical subject differently? With the Americans, I can assume a higher level of general interest in history. I think because most Americans have got ancestors who came from somewhere else, they have a kind of inbuilt fascination with it. And because America doesn't have an ancient architectural heritage, it's something they're very interested in. So I often get a lot of American interest in things like medieval England. But most English people are actually less interested in history. And I think that's partly because it's all around them. Everyone in England lives within a mile or two of medieval buildings, which if they were here would be pricelessly valuable, but they're just part of the everyday scenery. So I think you have to work harder in England to say to the audience, here's why history is fascinating and here's why it's important. Americans are much more primed to already believe that. So the mundane of history being surrounded by you can kind of lead to an apathy towards it? I think so, yeah. And I remember so clearly when I was in high school, the vast majority in, in English schools, you specialize early. And so the vast majority of kids dropped history as soon as they were allowed to, which was usually at the age of 15 and never subsequently studied it. American colleges here, even as the undergraduates, they still have to do these requirements, usually including a history class, a foreign language, a lab science and so on. So they're doing it to a more advanced age here. 
Mm. I think that would be counterintuitive, perhaps, to some of my American listeners. They would assume that there would be a, a greater interest because of the you know geographical connection to a larger historical period that they would want to study. And on that subject related to Americans, do you think Hollywood has helped or hindered public understanding of historical events? It's a, cl- a great question. And I think it's a, a balance, a mix. The, uh, for example, I, I saw Oppenheimer this summer when it came out. And I was half incredibly impressed by it because I, I, th- I think the scene leading up to the, the first atom bomb test is brilliant. It, the tension builds incredibly well. And you really have a feeling of what those scientists must have been going through as they wondered whether it was going to work. On the other hand, I couldn't understand why they jumbled up the time scale so badly because somebody who didn't know a lot of details about the history of the 1930s, 40s and 50s would be baffled at the sudden at the jumps in time scale and what had led to Oppenheimer's fall from grace. So I suppose because I actually teach this stuff, I'd like it to I'd like the movies to be more sequential and a little bit less sensationalistic. But of course I totally I totally understand that from the producer's point of view, he's got to sell tickets. And so he's going to look for ways to make it as as dramatic as possible. There are some outstandingly good historical films. I thought that Memphis Bell, for example, was a great one. That's one about an American bomber plane flying a mission from England over Germany during World War II. And it starts with the beginning of the mission and ends with the end of it. And it takes you through the whole thing in a way which seems to me very, very true to life. Mm-hmm. And similarly, there's a wonderful German one about a, a submarine crew called Das Boot, which is a brilliant, brilliant war film particularly because you see it from the losing side. I mean, these are guys who are they're fighting in a bad cause and they know it and they know they're going to lose. And so there, all the glamour of the war is completely stripped away and you're just left with the misery and the destructiveness. So at its best, films are fabulous medium for, for t- historical teaching. Yeah, and what I find the hardest to capture in historical films, and this is true in historical fiction too, is the mindset is, you know, and I remember I, I watched one of your great courses where you talked about the chain of being and how that is so dramatically different from, you know, modern mindset about equality that I find that movies and fiction that's historical struggles to recapture that mindset. And we just have 20th, 21st century characters in historical costumes. Do you, do you agree with that interpretation? Yes, very often. And the, the further back in time the film is set, usually the more unrealistic it is. That's right. So what we tend to do is to, is to impose our moral and, and social ideas on, on, on past periods, no matter how far they, away they are. Yeah, so I'd be, I mean, I think the, the, the various movies about Robin Hood are all awful because they're so grotesquely untrue to what medieval England was actually like. Yeah. Mm. One last question before we talk a little bit more about California and the West. I'm curious about uh, the evolution of your pedagogy as we're getting new technology. We have artificial intelligence that's entering the classrooms now. How has your approach to teaching changed in your time at Emory University, but also in, in thinking about how you structure courses like the great courses? Yeah. Um, in my classroom teaching, I realized quite early on that I had to exclude computers. So I don't let students look at computers and I don't let them look at phones while they're in class. I give them a handout of the an outline of the lecture on a sheet of paper, and I say, I want you to take notes on paper. 
because I know that if they have computers open, their attention will be divided. It's not that I'm against teaching technology. And I can imagine that in, if you're doing a physics class, it might be necessary for the professor to provide or to have them looking at a site which he's also looking at. But for historical study, it's more harm than good. I do think students' attention ability to concentrate for a long period has deteriorated. And I'm constantly saying to them, when you're doing the reading for this class, go to a place where you're not distracted by, by screens. You know, leave your phone behind. I don't think many of them do, but I keep saying it. I keep trying. On the other hand, I certainly think they're as intelligent as they ever were. And because we've got a highly selective student body, I, my, my impression is that if I aim high, they'll strive to live up to my expectations. But if I aim low, they'll very gladly sink down to the low level I'm offering. So I always make it, I make it challenging because I think they'll get more out of it that way. Yeah. And I've described this with colleagues before about them becoming bilingual to be able to do uh, difficult uh, or to sit with difficult and complex ideas, sentence structures, arguments within essays, but also to be able to be proficient in technology and balancing those can be incredibly hard because they are very different skills and muscles that you require in order to do those things. Exactly. I haven't yet had a paper which I suspect was written by AI, although presumably that day is approaching. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's jump into some topics of the West. I've asked a number of scholars on this program to give me their definition of the West, you know, vis-a-vis -vis the context of the American West in North America. How would you define the West? Well, I think from the time of the revolution right through to the 1890s, it was, it was the place to which the nation was going to expand next. And the, the, the amorphousness, but on the other hand, the allure of the West was one of the most stimulating and intriguing possibilities that a, a lot of early 19th century Americans used the language of building an empire. So I think that they thought they were doing something in a way comparable to what the British Empire was doing overseas. It's just that they were building a continental empire and they were going to make sure that they incorporated all the people into states which would at once have the same rights as the original states. In other words, what they weren't going to do was to make Tennessee and then Iowa and then Kansas subordinate in the way that Kenya and Uganda were subordinate to England in the British Empire. But then there's all, so on the one hand, it's this land of promise. On the other hand, there's a lot of American writing about from the 18 through 70 period about how as you go west, you leave civilization behind and it becomes cruder and more brutal and more primitive and, and, and in every way sort of less sophisticated. But I, and I think that so it's also regarded as sort of missionary territory, both literally in the religious sense, but also figuratively in the with the idea that it's a place which has got to become civilized. So if you know about Owen Wister's novel, The Virginian, which I think I mentioned in one of the lectures published in 1902, and it's about this ex-Confederate cowboy, the Virginian, who lives by frontier justice out there in Wyoming when it's still a territory. And he participates in a lynching against some cattle, cattle rustlers. And the book's quite clear about the fact it's necessary. You've got to take the law into your own hands. Anyway, but, the, the, but a big theme of the book is how a, um, a school teacher, a woman from Bennington, Vermont, goes out to teach school in this community 
and the cowboy falls in love with her and she kind of domesticates him. She turns him into a responsible citizen who realizes, yes, we must bring law, we must bring education, we must bring religion to the West and make it more like Vermont and less like other, the way it has been for the, these early decades of its, of its colonization. What I think you're kind of circling there in the question was the next thing I was going to ask about, which is myth-making. How did myth-making of the West change over time? Well, it certainly started very early. That it was Well, it was regarded as a, a, a savage land because of Americans' intense fear of, of the Native Americans. I mean, obviously, when we look back, usually with a, a feeling of shame about what happened, it's easy for us to forget how terrifying the Indians were, you know, the Comanches and the, and the Sioux and the Cheyenne, which obviously partly contributed to the settlers' ferocity against them. So part of the mythology was of, of a wild land. It was wilderness in two senses. It was wilderness in that it wasn't settled, and it was wilderness in the sense that the frightening nomadic warriors wandered across it, and that they got to be removed or also in some way domesticated. So there's that kind of mythology. But then there's also the mythology of it being a place where by taking great risks, you can get great gains. And that's personified in the gold rush. You know, it was very hard indeed in the 1840s and 50s to get to California. But if you did get there, you could make a great fortune for yourself, which you never would have made if you stayed working, you know, in the blacksmith shop back in New Jersey. Mm. And so, and then even while the, I mean, in the 1870s and 80s, Buffalo Bill set up the Wild West show, which was designed to show people back east some of the some of the mythological characteristics of the West, particularly the great riding, the great lasso tricks, the sharpshooting, and, and then even persuading Native Americans who'd recently been genuine enemies to play the role of fictional enemies in state in you know the stagecoach robbery and how the how the brave cavalrymen beat the Indians, that kind of thing. Mm. Um, so you're right, it's, it's saturated in mythology, even while it was going on. One of the most influential classes I took as an undergraduate student studying history was with a professor that was a geographer as well as a historian. And it helped me develop my love for looking at maps for both how it sees the world and how it designs the world. Um, how do you think that maps of the West what do they teach us about the people who made them, but also how they p potentially misinform us about the landscape? Well, first of all, when I was a kid growing up in England, geography was a subject we studied formally, whereas most American kids don't actually have geography classes. And I find that most of them aren't really very familiar with maps, or at least they're not familiar with looking at maps critically. So I spend a lot of time on that, especially when I'm teaching American environmental history or American Western history. Yes, as soon as you look at the maps, you realize how enormous it is. And then you start to realize it isn't, it isn't undifferentiated land. We need to understand which parts are prairie, which parts are mountain, which parts are desert. And we need to understand the distances and how great they are and how vital things like the first railways were at opening up this massive area. And, then it, and, it's, and it's fun also to look at maps which were designed to mislead people. There was this idea in the 1860s and 70s that, you know, you've probably heard of this idea, rain follows the plow. If you go to, it may be true that, you know, eastern Colorado is very dry, but if you start farming there, it will get wetter. And so, and the maps 
designed to lure people out to Colorado, gave a misleading impression of how wet it was going to be. And then another generation on in the early 1900s, the claim was, it's true that this area, Arizona, is desert, but we can irrigate it. We can turn that into farmland as well. So a certain amount of sleight of hand and deception there. But on the other hand, some very, very good quality map making from people like the U.S. Geological Survey, which starting in the early 1870s, did a brilliant job of mapping the West to give us a very good idea of the landscape, the land forms, where the rivers flowed and, and, and a realistic sense of what we could and couldn't do with it. One of the things that I've appreciated over the past few years has been the proliferation of work on indigenous history in the United States. I just recently finished Hekel Hamelinen's Indigenous Continent. I've loved his two previous books on the Comanche and the Lakota as well. And we've also had you know Hollywood films that have come out recently, like Killers of the Flower Moon. If you are working with first-year university students and trying to give them frames of reference for how to think about the role of indigenous history and in, indigenous people in U.S. history, how would you frame it? Well, I, get, I glanced at that question before by, by emphasizing the, the way in which each side looked at the other with a, in a mood of acute fear. I think that's something it's easy to overlook. There is a tendency to sentimentalize Native American life, partly out of a feeling of remorse. And so we do need to take seriously that they were societies mostly dedicated to warfare, hunting and warfare societies, in which the death rate among the young men was incredibly high in, in war and in hunting accidents. And so that although it's, it's certainly important that we should learn to understand what they were doing and why they were doing it, what we need to avoid is the, the tendency to romanticize it. I mean, I do think that one of the characteristics of American, the American approach to history is to assume that there are villains and heroes. And of course, in the 19th century, the villains were the American, or the villains were the Indians. And now, unfortunately, we sometimes get history in which the Americans are the villains and the Indians have become the heroes. And both those ways of looking at it are inadequate. What we need to look, I mean, basically, we need to develop a more anthropological frame of mind in which we can understand here's why these people did what they did and sort of preclude from or prescind from judgment or premature judgment. In the end, we can say, here's what we think about it. But first, let's try to find out who they were, what they believed the world was like, why they did what they did. Yeah. Mm. So that demonization is always a terrible idea. Did you see Killers of the Flower Moon? Haven't seen it yet. My wife has read the book and she's dead keen for us to go and see the film. We will very soon. Okay, perfect. How was the gold rush in California a major turning point in U.S. history? Well, it raised the possibility for the first time that there was going to be a state which wasn't contiguous with all the others. Until then, states had always been added on with eastern boundaries which touched the others. But California became a state early on, 1850 or 51. And it was a very long way to the to the rest of the states. So that raised the it, it accelerated the probability that a transcontinental railroad would be built. And it also increased the probability that the United States would start thinking about itself as not necessarily confined to the continent. I think it, made, it created a valuable precedent for the later acquisition of Alaska and Hawaii. And it could have led to a, the precedent that we might have 
incorporated Cuba and the Philippines into the United States and Puerto Rico after the after the Spanish War of 1898. Obviously, that didn't happen. So it was a precedent which wasn't followed to the full, but it was followed to some extent. But I noticed that when I'm teaching American history, you know, the, the standard outline map of the US, which goes from coast to coast, and you have the very distinctive outline with Florida in the east and Baja California in the west and the, sh the shapes of the US. American students find it very difficult to get out of the habit of assuming that the United States was destined to look that way. And when you show them the map of what America was like just after the revolution in 1783, at the time of the, you know, the treaty which ended the Revolutionary War, they're also, they're already thinking, yes, but implicitly it's the whole thing. To which I'm saying, no, no, implicitly it's not. We know it did turn out that way, but that doesn't mean it was bound to turn out that way. And similarly, when we study the Mexican War of the 1840s, I say, I say to the students, it was a war between a geographically big nation, Mexico, and a smaller, a geographically smaller nation, the United States. And of course, because they're familiar with Mexico being much smaller than the US, they find that hard to grasp as well. It feels wrong. But then, of course, when you show them the map of the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, by which the, the US incorporated huge areas of what had been Mexico, then they start to say, oh, yeah, I guess, you know, that really is true. Oh, and one more thing. I was a graduate student at Berkeley. And so I came from, I'd been an undergraduate in England at Oxford. And when I came to Berkeley to begin the study of US history, I was very surprised that we started by learning about Puritan New England. Because I assumed that we'd start by learning about the history of the place where we were, which is to say Spanish California. But that hardly came up in the curriculum at all. And then I realized, oh, yeah. So even here at Berkeley, the assumption is that American history is something which starts on the East Coast. That, that was my experience as well. Um, yeah. on, uh, on this podcast, uh, we're about to begin a new section on transcontinental railroads. Um, and I'm curious if you think that the element of corruption and grift have been overemphasized in the writing about railroads. Well, it's funny you should say that because I'm currently writing a book about the history of American railroads. Okay, perfect. And, and so I've, I've thought a lot about that question. It, as, a, as an issue in American business history and political history, we're right to concentrate on the grift. But on the history of railroads, we're wrong to. Because there's no question that getting the line built, the first one, was an incredible technical achievement, overcoming phenomenal difficulties. And too much attention to the credit mobilier scandal and all the rest of it is a distraction from what a, what a magnificent accomplishment it was. So certainly the way I'm writing about it is to, is to pass over lightly the, the, the scandals and emphasize what was actually going on on the route of the railway itself. So maybe the corruption and grift is, is somewhat normative for large government projects like this in this time period, but maybe that's not the most important point to take away, even though it is salient in some ways. Yes, and in not only government projects, Private business also had the most incredible array of, of activities which we now regard as, well, which are illegal. Insider trading. If you look at the history of how Andrew Carnegie grew rich, it was entirely from getting tips from people who now would be prosecuted from giving him the tips. <laughs> and he's not the exceptional in that respect. But yes, that's right. It was a period where, I mean, it's funny, isn't it? We sometimes think of the Victorians as very moralistic. And about some things, they certainly were. But about others, particularly business ethics and political ethics, they were incredibly lax. And the, and the, the flagrant 
abuses, just incredible by our standards. In one of your episodes on the Great Courses in the West, you discuss life in Western towns, and you looked at three, Salt Lake City, Chicago, and San Francisco. Now, initially, I didn't think of Chicago as a Western city. Uh, maybe that's just my perception as someone living in California. But in many ways, you proved to me that it is. Uh, can you discuss, though, what makes San Francisco in particular, since this podcast is about California, distinct as a Western city relative to cities like Salt Lake and Chicago? Distinct because it was a port. And so it was founded early on. The the California coastline was explored much more thoroughly than the California interior, really right through into the 18th. And so the bay is a magnificent natural harbor. So it was absolutely the logical place for the building of a of a of a city and a port city. And it was a place, we, and, and so it's, a, it's unusual in, in the history of the United States West by having a history several hundred years long, even though it was tiny. I mean, another thing that strikes me very strongly about California history is that from the time the conquistadors arrived in the New World, from then right through until the 1840s, the population of California, indigenous and settler, was microscopic. It was tiny. And yet, the very moment the Americans took over in 1848, the population began to grow incredibly rapidly. The gold rush was the very next year. I mean, think how galling it must have been to be Mexican and to realize that they'd owned that land, the Spanish and then the Mexicans owned that land for centuries, and they'd never noticed it. Whereas the Americans instantly cottoned onto it and began to exploit it. And people started pouring into California, and they've been pouring in ever since. So that California became one of the most high population states, having always been an area which until then, the, the conventional wisdom was not many people can live here. I mean, I always think when I fly to L.A., I'm always astonished because you're flying over the desert and it's just sort of desert, 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 desert. desert. Then suddenly you see this gigantic city and you think, how can that possibly exist? It's a desert. But of course, the answer is clever manipulation of the water supply and the building of the dams on the Colorado River and the aquifers and everything that goes with it. So it's so San Francisco in particular, but equally urban California altogether, is a tribute to the powers of human engineering, which are just there's nowhere in the world where they're exhibited to more dramatic effect than California. Do you think the presence of violence in the West has been overstated? Yes, because although although there was a certain amount of vigilante justice and there's obviously there's a long tradition of Americans owning weapons and shooting each other, a much bigger story is the history of American cooperation. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it, for me as an immigrant, one of the things about that's so lovely about America is how how helpful and cooperative people are. I mean, I think when you're living in, in Europe, you hear a lot about the rapacity of American capitalism, and you develop a mental picture of people who are heartless toward each other. But then, you, but then the reality you find on the ground is very high levels of good manners, civility, cooperativeness, friendliness, hospitality. I mean, I do remember when I went to California, I, I first lived there in 1978. I was absolutely delighted by how welcoming the society was. And it's a feeling I've never, never fully gotten over. I still appreciate it very much. So to say California is a violent society or the American West, it's true in a way, but it's a very relative 
thing. Yes, I mean, I certainly if 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 you just ask me what's California like, violence won't even come up until page. 74 you know i've got all sorts of other things to say about it but let's jump into some other questions that are not directly related to the west or california but i'm i'm curious and they kind of connect in different ways um are there too many books published on the founding fathers well no because everybody should be free to write about what they want to write about and luckily nobody makes us read them all so I would be a bit discouraged at the prospect of writing yet one more biography of Washington or Jefferson. But I, I certainly defend the right of people who do that to, to be able to do it. And it is true that as, as our assumptions change, we, um, new, we can shine new light upon it. For example, once Jefferson's, once those DNA tests proved that um, some of those African-American children will, really were descended from Jefferson and Sally Hemings. And once our, our attitude towards racial politics was transformed, it did open up a new set of fascinating questions. Uh, I mean, I, I am struck by this, that when you look at, at books written about the American Revolution, books written about the revolutionaries outnumber books about the loyalists about 500 to 1. Whereas if you look at books about the American Civil War, there's as many about the Confederates as there are about the Union. And so when graduate students sometimes say to me, you know, what do you think about what would be a good topic for the, my dissertation? I say, the loyalists. But they shrink away from that in absolute distaste. And so weirdly, even though the loyalists were the ones who were, were staying with the world they knew and the revolutionaries were breaking away, Somehow they don't count in American history. Whereas in the Civil War, the ones who were breaking away were the Confederates, and they do somehow count. That's always struck me as weird. You're both from England and also have done courses on the history of England. What is one thing about the history of England you wish American history, students of American history better understood? That throughout most of English history, nobody talked about human equality because it's difficult to understand the hierarchy of British society or the hierarchies of most societies in world history when you're growing up in America. Because here, everybody at least says they believe in human equality and democracy, and, and therefore they find it difficult to believe that people could have come from a, a relatively low position on the social scale and yet think that that's okay. I mean, I remember so clearly that my grandmother would say to me, this is our place on the social hierarchy. These people are above us and those people are below us. And that's how it's supposed to be. I mean, I can't imagine an American saying that. An American would always say, oh, no, we're all equal. And they know it's not literally true, but they feel it to be sort of metaphysically true. Yeah. And I have that, maybe not misunderstanding, but that American reaction. I remember when I was watching the show Downton Abbey and the butler would describe to the, you know, some of his staff about remembering their place. I just have this feeling in my stomach that just kind of creeps and crawls that I, I it, it's a world I don't understand. And so what, what about, un, what about understanding that concept would help American students better understand maybe their American history, how different England is from the United States in terms of culture and ideology or something else yes and also how how the, the the anomalous the unusual one is america 
because nearly all societies in world history have not believed in equality. It's a very exceptional belief. And nature presents us with plenty of evidence to not believe in it. Obviously, some people are far more talented than others. People are different. And so to, to, to make the assertion that all people are equal and to actually build a society on that belief, it's simultaneously exciting and exhilarating and obviously untrue. But it's hard to realize how untrue it is if you grow up in America because you become saturated with that idea from an early stage. And I think that, that when you're studying, I mean, even more hierarchical societies like the, the Arab nations today, you know, why don't the poor people in the Arab nations rise up against their, the elites? And the answer is because they, they know that they're of lower social class. Or, you know, why didn't the Spanish peasants overthrow the aristocracy? Because they knew they were humble and they, 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 you know, they knew their place. They believed that God had put them there. Well, I'm glad you brought up God because I wanted to ask about religion next. To understand many historical events, and I'm thinking in particular about like the English Civil War, you really need to understand religious history. And oh, yeah. I recall having a someone come to the university where I was doing graduate work and discuss the Enlightenment. And one of the things she pointed to was that the printing press is so important in the terms of the Enlightenment. I remember asking her about the Reformation's role, and she kind of dismissed it casually. And I think that this is representative of a larger movement in academia against kind of, you know, devaluing the role of religion in history. I guess my question is, do you see religion as just a cloak for ideology in, in history, or do you see it as a active, serious thing people believe that wasn't just some kind of ideological cloak if that I'm, I'm kind of struggling with this question a bit but i think you're following yeah no my view is that it's very real indeed and that the religion is, is one of the most central motivating factors in human history so i i would completely disagree with your professor who denigrated it i would say that the reformation is one of the most important events of the last thousand years uh, you know i put it right up alongside things like the industrial revolution it, to me it's, it's crucial and religion is one of the things that people are willing to die for. And obviously, every religion has got its martyrs, whereas there aren't many practical things for which people are willing to, to die. So, or, so religion seems to me like one of the great organizing principles of life. And once again, it's very unusual in world historical terms to find people who are not profoundly religious. They're quite common today, especially in the advanced nations. But historically, they're very unusual indeed. Yeah. Last question before we wrap up with books. I watched this fascinating exchange on YouTube the other day between an American named Ben Shapiro, who's a conservative in the United States context, and Andrew Neal. It was on the BBC. And in spite of their shared allegiance to conservatism, they seemed like they were talking in two completely different languages. Can you discuss the differences between American conservative and British conservatism? American conservatives want to conserve things like capitalism, which is itself a profoundly um, transformative approach to the economy. Capitalism has always be always believes there's a better way of doing it. It's a very dynamic idea in which in which one business is always driving others into into bankruptcy. They're constantly consolidating. New technologies are replacing old ones. So, so capitalism is an inherently destabilizing force. And yet, strangely, American conservatives are people who want to conserve an unconservative force. 
Whereas in England, English conservatives are much more skeptical about capitalism because they know that. And, and what they're more interested in is, is upholding traditional ways of doing things, which sometimes prevent capitalism from getting its own way. Mm. Now, and also because of particular, for particular historical reasons, American conservatives tend to be very enthusiastic about guns, for example, because they're part of American tradition. Whereas English conservatives say, of course, ordinary citizens shouldn't have guns. What could be more dangerous than that? It's, it's, they, they'll, they'll disrupt the, you know, the orderly running of society. So it's partly what you want to conserve. And because different countries have got different traditions and different heritages, there's no necessary um, coincidence between the conservatives of one country and another. Let's close with books. What are three books you'd recommend to listeners on any of the topics we covered? And then I wanted to ask you about books for American readers trying to understand English history. The best one-volume history of England is by a man called Simon Sharma. I think he's called it A History of the English People or something like that. He's a very, very gifted and approachable writer. And he's, he's excellent on all these questions like the nature of hierarchy and so on. On the history of the American West, I love the book by Richard White called Railroaded. In fact, he's a guy you must have on your show if you're going to talk about railroads. Yes, we had him recently on to talk about the murder of Jane Stanford, but he'll be coming on again, I believe, to talk about railroads. Oh, excellent. Yeah, so I, I admire him very much. And I think his is probably the best book about American railroad history of the last century, maybe. Then there are some wonderful American classics like the, the Oregon Trail by Francis Parkman, when he was in his 20s, he rode out from Harvard out into what was then the Wyoming Territory and lived with the Sioux Indians for one summer and went hunting with them and went on a war party. And it's an incredible description of what that was like. And then the book by John Wesley Powell, The Exploration of the Colorado River and Its Canyons. This is the guy who did the first boat trip down the Grand Canyon. Everyone thought he died, but then he sort of showed up again after three months, amazingly alive, after taking a wooden boat down Lava Falls in the Grand Canyon. That, so that's a great one, too. And last question is always the same. What, what are you working on? You kind of mentioned that you're working on a book on railroads. When is that set to come out, and what's the, what's the premise of the book? Well, it's, that's right. It's a, it's, a, it's a history of the, it's the whole of American railroad history from the 1830s to the present. And it really makes the claim that you can understand every other aspect of American history using the railroads as your anchoring point. So there's a lot about the environment, a lot about farming, a lot about industry, a lot about literature and music and film. But I keep coming back to the railways and how they were changing. And then within within the specifically railroad part of it, it's about the amazing rise of the railroads between 1830 and about 1910, and then their decline in the face of competition from trucks and automobiles and aircraft, and then their self-reinvention after about 1980, when they became specialists in bulk freight movement, having banished the passengers altogether. So it's a sort of up, down, and then up again arc. Wonderful. And what, I, haven't what, got, I haven't yet got a publisher. I've just finished writing it. And so I just sent it off to my agent and I'm waiting to see if she can find a press. I'm, ho I'm hopeful that she'll find someone eager to, to publish it soon. Yeah. And what's what's one thing from the book that maybe someone that has a casual understanding of railroads might be surprised about? 
that between the 1890s and the 1930s, one of the great entertainments at state fairs was having staged train crashes. There were quite a lot of guys who'd buy old locomotives and they'd lay, they'd lay a section of track at the state fair and they'd put these two locomotives and get drivers to get them started and then jump off and bring them together to blow up. <laughs> and it was, yeah. it was that... extremely popular. I think I think that would continue to be popular today if that was an offering at your local county fair. <laughs> well, I appreciate you taking the time. This has been super informative and I love your work and I encourage listeners to uh, read your books. Hopefully the railroad book will be out in somewhere in the near term, but also watch your courses. There's amazing courses you have. So you have a course on the history of England, the course on American religion, a course on the West. What other courses are available? Well, I'd like to plug the one on the rise and fall of the British Empire and the one on the history of the Industrial Revolution. Yes, yes. They've all been great. I, I particularly loved your course on Victorian Victorian England. I learned a lot about that period. It's an important period and understanding the 20th century in a lot of ways, too. And so I encourage everyone to go and watch your courses. And thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. Great pleasure. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us by either giving us a rating and review or by making a financial contribution at our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash historyofcalifornia. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.